Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me is our host, Dr. Russ McCola, our Menard Family Philosophy and Ethics professor, Dr. Justin Clark, my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael, and our undergraduate assistant, Jacob Caudill. All right, so we have a special episode today. We have uh, Dr. Russ Roberts um, on the line here, who is, I think, maybe most famous for your econ talk. Is that a, is that a fair statement, Russ, or...? I could be. I have no idea what I'm famous for, <laughs> Russ, but I'll take yeah, whatever I got. I guess in my in my circles, that's the first thing from a media standpoint that comes to mind. So uh, Russ hosts a podcast called Econ Talk that I suggest uh, all of you uh, give, uh, go and check out where he does a number of interviews. It's usually an interview format with some some famous people of various sorts and really interesting topics. Uh, he's a research fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and um, I had forgotten this about you, but you got your PhD from the University of Chicago back in 1981, and I also was surprised, this is just from the little Wikipedia, that you did some specialization in government transfers and stuff, uh, which is also what I did part of my dissertation on. And that was under Gary Becker, no less, who I cited in my dissertation, so pretty awesome that you got to spend some time with Gary Becker. Uh, you previously taught at George Mason and uh, been on shows like National Public Radio's Morning Edition, um, the New York Times, done some writing, and the Wall Street Journal. And so we are honored to have you on today, Russ. Great to be with you. Great. So Russ wrote a book um, called How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. And I love the way you narrate part of your life being influenced by that. And um, I wonder if you could maybe just start off there with some of the background on that and how it influenced your life. Well, Adam Smith wrote two books, one of which uh, a lot of people have heard of called The Wealth of Nations, and the second most people haven't heard of called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, the Theory of Moral Sentiments is a, I like to call it the greatest self-help book you've never read or never heard of. He would not really be flattered have it called a self-help book but, <laughs> you know for us moderns that might help people understand what it's about he's trying to understand human nature he's trying to understand what makes us happy although he would not think of happiness the way a modern does he would think of it as more tranquility or serenity uh satisfaction contentment and so his book is about why we care about other people to the extent that we do why do we act with benevolence and kindness to others given that we're inherently self-interested, and what makes us tick? What do we care about deeply and profoundly that leads to serenity, contentment, and satisfaction? And what he's interested is in is our social circles. Uh, we use that term to mean the people we hang out with, but I like to think of it from his perspective as the rings of intimacy that we share with, say, a family at, at the most intimate level, and then our neighborhood or immediate community and then our nation and then maybe the world and smith viewed those rings as very different we treat people very differently depending on where they fall in those in those rings and how we connect to people so that's 
a huge chunk of what that's, that book is about, how we interact with the people around us and uh, why we sometimes do things that seem to be um, altruistic. What motivates us to do that? And that's what, that's what he's trying to understand. Yeah, and I, how do you think some of what he did changed you as an economist? Uh, if, if we think to Max, you, even Jacob on our last podcast was talking about, you know, some of the, what we've done with his time at the Gorton Institute has enlightened him further that it's not all about maximizing GDP and um, the benefits that can come from that, but more complex. And I, I felt like when I read your book that that really uh, hit you differently when you first dipped into theory of moral sentiments. Let me set it up maybe a little in a related way, which is uh, there is a temptation, I think, among economists to care a lot about growth and measured standards of living like GDP. That's what Smith's other book is about, How Do Nations Become Rich? He changed the way the economics profession thinks about that. There, he kind of created the economics profession, more or less. It's not exactly true, but it's uh, it's close to true that he was the first economist. Not Again, not literally, but he's the first economist that people think of and right. it just put the profession on a particular path. But he's trying to understand why certain nations get rich, and he focused on issues like trade, specialization, the division of labor, all important. All those are important in helping to understand how some nations thrive uh, financially in, in terms of standard of living. His other book, though, the one we're talking about, uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, the one I wrote my book about, is actually quite hostile to the idea of the pursuit of wealth, which I think comes as a shock to folks. Hmm. He says the one line I love in that book that, that helps me think about not just what he saw as what gives us satisfaction, but I think also can help us lead our own lives, is uh, the following. Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. Mm-hmm. And by that, he meant not just affectionate, more, uh, romantic love, but respect, honor, praise, mattering in the world, being influential. He said, these are the things that that we naturally desire. We want to be thought of as important, as respected by the people around us. And he says, not, that's what he means by loved. And by lovely, he means worthy of those things, worthy of respect, praiseworthy, worthy of the honor and importance that others might might see in us. And that statement is clearly at odds with the normal way economists in teaching principles of economics think about economics. Now, when you take an economics class, you'll learn that economists see people as, quote, maximizing utility. And utility is a catch-all phrase. It can include lots of things besides money. That's what's good about it. But often what economists then tend to do is focus on things that can be measured, how many goods people produce, what they buy with those goods, their demand for shirts, their demand for entertainment or leisure, their investment in education to lead to a higher salary. Now, a good economist will always remember that that's not all, the, that's not all we care about, as I say in the book. Most people do understand that, that the goal of life is not to accumulate the most toys. Though that doesn't mean you win. But we often forget that, I think, as economists, and we tend to think of money as the technical phrase is fungible, meaning I can move it around, I can substitute money here for money there. And the example I use, I've used to think about this is if I, if you make, let's say you make $75,000 a year and you do something that has meaning to you in that job, 
it's a it's let's say you're a you've been a school teacher for a long time and you're well paid as a, as a, a veteran teacher and you find your job meaningful and you get deep satisfaction from the teaching that you do and now I tell you I'm going to I'm sorry I'm firing you but don't worry I'm going to give you $75,000 a year anyway now <laughs> in a in a very bad economist model or worldview you'd be indifferent between right. those two because in, right. in fact you'd prefer $75,000 without teaching because then you'll have extra time to play the flute and learn French and surf the web for YouTube videos. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the human uh, spirit. And I think Smith understood that very well. Yeah. I think most economists understand it when you press them on it. The problem is we sometimes just forget because right. it's convenient and it can't be measured. Yeah, very those intangible, those intangible things called, <laughs> respect of those around me, the dignity of work, the power of self-achievement and agency. Those are things that are abstract, intangible, non-measurable. I think they're the most important things to most of our lives. And so I think as economists, it's not so much that we, that we don't focus on them. That's okay. We could focus on the demand for shirts, but we forget that that other stuff is out there. That's the the bigger problem is not just, well, we can't look at that, so we just don't look at it a lot. We look at this other stuff. When we look at that other stuff, we kind of forget that this more important stuff, the dignity, respect, and agency, is uh, what really matters. And yeah. so that's the sense in which I think it's changed me as an economist. I think as a, as a human being, the way Adam Smith changed me is that he really focuses you on being aware of the fact that the people around you are often motivated by what I just said. They want to be loved and lovely. They want to be uh, respected and they want to see themselves as worthy of respect. And when you first start to be exposed to that idea and you start thinking about it in any level of intensity, it's kind of a eye opener. You know, again, a parody of what economists believe is that, oh, people respond to incentives. That's been my central professional one of my several Mantra. <laughs> mantras, and I think it's true. People do respond to incentives, but if you're not careful, you think that it's only monetary incentives. You forget they respond to other kinds of incentives sure. related to how you're perceived in the world. And again, I think that if you if you read Smith and he digs deep into these ideas, and we're giving a very superficial level right. by necessity in a short conversation, when you dig deep into this, it starts to affect – yeah, you know, the choices you make. It should affect how you interact with your friends. It should cho it should affect how you interact with your family. If you really want to be lovely, you can easily talk yourself into thinking, "Oh, I'll take this job that you know is ninety hours a week, and it's and I'll make a lot of money, which is great because then it'll keep my family happy because I'll be able to take them on nice vacations." Of course, they won't see me very often because I work at ninety hours a week. And Smith reminds you that that might not be lovely. Uh, you might, if you're not careful, deceive yourself into justifying your own ego and pursuing that career path and forget that it may shortchange you elsewhere. And yeah. he, he's very understanding that we often deceive ourselves as to what's lovely. He spends a lot of time talking about the impartial spectator, the idea that you might respond to the idea that someone is watching you who is not self-interested, who isn't going to make the excuses you make to yourself for your less than admirable behavior. And that's a very powerful uh, idea, again, to help you lead a better life if you want to. 
You know, what, what would be your opinion on if he would be less misunderstood in the way you're sedating if somehow the wealth of nations and, and theory of moral sentiments would have been one book as opposed to two, but, and he really, I think, or at least, I don't know if you feel the same or not, but people say that it was really always meant to be part one, part two, but we just kind of glommed on to part two with Wealth of Nations. But had it been compiled all together as one book, would he have been less misunderstood? Well, the problem is, is he doesn't really integrate the ideas in the two books in any deliberate way. He, he may have been trying to write a third book in, in his old right. age that didn't happen. But you know, I think it's important just to mention, I, I alluded to the fact that, that he uh, was not very respectful of the idea of the pursuit of wealth. In, in the theory of moral sentiments, he says, our desire to be loved, to be praised, respected, honored, pushes us to pursue fame, power, and wealth, and that those are not ultimately going to be satisfying. Uh, we might be loved, but we might do things along the way that, that are not admirable. We won't mm -hmm. be lovely, be ashamed of what we've done in our climb to the top. And so he suggests you should pursue wisdom and virtue, very old-fashioned uh, idea, uh, very traditional idea, uh, very much what your parents might tell you, at least in their ideals for, you, for, for us as, as their children. And that's just shocking coming from the person who wrote The Wealth of Nations, which is only about how do you get more money, not literally as a person, but how do nations gain wealth. Yeah. And in the theory of world sentiments, he explicitly says, uh, you know, if you gain a lot of wealth, you're not going to be any happier. Now, he lived in 1759 right. when he wrote this book came out. The Wealth of Nations came out in 1776. He, he may have felt differently about this if he lived in our times, but we also understand that after a certain amount of money, it maybe doesn't lead to a lot more happiness. It can lead to a lot more unhappiness if we pursue that wealth in the wrong way. Where do you think he was uh, at on faith? I've heard of somewhat conflicting things in terms of his uh, views on either faith in general or Christianity. Um, we, we did interview Vernon Smith, and we got kind of one answer and a, a different Adam Smith scholar that, I don't know, it just seems like there's definitely some fuzziness there. What's your opinion on his uh, faith or, or lack of? Well, my experience, and I won't name names, but my experience is that in talking to people who read a lot of Adam Smith, they tend to see Smith's religiosity through their own level of religiosity. Ah. You know, a natural human tendency. There's nothing institutionally religious or Christian about the theory of moral sentiments. He does occasionally invoke what he calls the author of nature, which by which he presumably means uh, God, the divine, uh, the mm -hmm. almighty. But there's nothing – when I used to teach that book and I would talk about how I understood his passages like that, I'll give you a quick uh, summary of that. So he says in there that that God – the author of nature appoints us as God's, uh, he calls them vicegerents, which is a fancy word for sheriffs. <laughs> okay. We go around, we go around monitoring the behavior of people around us through the uh, upraised, upturned eyebrow or the, uh, the raised eyebrow or the applause that we give people. So when you do a good deed, I salute you and cheer you on. And when you're selfish and horrible, I, uh, maybe stop being your friend if it's awful mm -hmm. enough. Right. And he says those daily interactions are what introduce civilization into the world, create morality and keep us in line. And he concedes it doesn't work perfectly, but he argues that our inherent desire to be loved and lovely 
because we want the respect of the people around us. That limits our ability to pursue our self-interest and forces us to act benevolently from time to time and kindly to the people around us because otherwise we won't have any friends and we won't feel good about ourselves. And so that's, I think that's a religious statement, but it's not a Christian statement. My Christian students, uh, I'm Jewish. I found that deeply uh, affecting my Christian students didn't like it. They they didn't view it as Christian. They they it just didn't speak to them. And I don't. Adam Smith's best friend was David Hume, one of the most famous atheists of all time. It's possible that Smith's references to God or just were just to curry favor with the authorities and keep him <laughs> teaching at various you know at mm-hmm. the time Christian universities. So right. I, I would say that his his personal faith was pretty hidden, uh, whether it was zero or had this sort of um, general theist approach that I'm alluding to is possible, but there's nothing institutionally Christian or institutionally religious in his writing that I know of. Yeah. But would you say that it was border, uh, when you first said sheriff and some other things, I was thinking of stewardship, the concept of God owns everything and we're manager of his resources. Was it, it was it that kind of notion? Yeah, that's, I think it's, it's not, I would say it's not inconsistent with that. He, but he, he, when he writes about it, he writes about it as a social scientist, not as a believer. Yeah. He's um, he's very interested in how our social interactions produce what we would call in social science institutions. That meaning means the norms of behavior that that pervade our everyday life, often without our being aware of it. And he couched that in a religious language in that set of pages I'm yeah. describing. But it wasn't anything more than that, to be honest. Well, as a believer, I, I usually thought more of the invisible hand being God's hand, that he set these autonomous agents on earth to carry out, you know, his will. So in that stewardship perspective, through our us pursuing our own self-interest and our people that are close to us interests, that, you know, his will gets served. And so I, that... To me, I didn't know if you've ever taken the invisible hand to be something of maybe a higher power's hand of some sort. Well, I think if you're a religious believer, as as I am, you you can conceive of God acting that way. And certainly in Jewish theology, there is a a strong idea that that God's face is hidden in modern times. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Smith meant the invisible anything like that by the invisible right. hand. We right. we can think of it that way if we want. It may be it may speak to you or to me. Exactly. But he, he used the invisible hand in a very narrow way, very actually very different from the way a secular economist of of, yeah. of the twentieth century would would see it. It didn't mean markets and uh, in the, the way we think of it. He did believe in those things. He just didn't use the phrase the invisible hand to describe <laughs> it. Yeah. Uh, so so that's just you know. Yeah. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to take our first break. And uh, when we come back, uh, I dipped into uh, Russ's thoughts on uh, Adam Smith's faith. And so I want to dig a little deeper with Russ's thoughts on his own faith. So um, that's what we'll do here in 30 seconds. The Gortney Institute is seeking a graduate assistant. Earn your MBA with full tuition by participating in fun and impactful events. For more information, check out the Gortney Institute website. To ask a question for our mailbag, send us an email at info at gortneyinstitute.org or call us at 785-248-2500. 
1-800-273-5851. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Justin or Russ today. Okay, we're back with Russ Roberts and uh, left you with a cliffhanger wanting to dive a little deeper into with uh, Russ's faith and how that's maybe worked with him. Um, I, I'm just going to kick you off with a, a question that um, I've heard from other people and I, other theologians phrased it this way. So people either think about Jesus as liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord, and uh, so, uh, you know, the Christians, of course, favor the Lord version, and um, the Muslims, I think, would probably be on the legend version somewhere, or prophet, uh, that sort of thing. But with the Jewish faith, what, what are your thoughts on this Jesus? Is it the liar, the lunatic, or somewhere in between? I guess, what, what, is, what is your thoughts on, on Jesus as a, a Jewish person? Well, I don't think most Jews think a lot about Jesus. I certainly wouldn't put Jesus in any of those four categories uh, myself, they were all L's, right? So that's kind of cute. Yeah, that, was, uh, yeah, a that limits. Liar, lun- liar, lunatic, legend, or Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, what's interesting to me is that Judaism uh, has evolved over about 3,500 years, roughly. And it started with a, a book, which the five books of Moses, which Jews consider divine in different levels, different ways. And then the subsequent writings of what Christians call the Old Testament. And then Jews had to live in the, in the world. They, you know, for a while, there was a land of Israel with Jewish kings, and then Jews got dispersed, and they had to live in the world. For a long time, they lived in, under the Romans. They lived alongside Islam. They lived alongside Christianity. And Judaism had to deal with all of that, and as that was happening, this immense corpus of commentary was written about the obligations of a, of a Jewish life, given what we have in, in what's called the Old Testament. And that is in what's called the Talmud, it's in Jewish responsa, that is rabbinic answers to questions people had of, over the millennia about what they're supposed to do. And through all that, in a way, Jews were totally in their own world. They were often segregated, so they didn't have to interact with the secular world or the Christian or the Muslim world, and yet often they did. And so the normative Jewish view of Islam or Christianity is complicated tremendously by that uh, history. So I'll give you an example. When Mel Gibson's movie came out, was that maybe was it ten years ago now? Yeah, the the Passion was that yeah. the name of it. Yeah. So that that movie created a great amount of enthusiasm on, in certain parts of the Christian community, and Jews were very cold toward it. And 
a lot of my Christian friends couldn't understand why. And so I offered to give a, um, a talk at George Mason about this. You know, why were Jews so unexcited about this film? And I found, you know, I said, I'm a little uncomfortable doing this, but I have to tell you, I haven't seen the movie. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about the movie. As long as you're okay with that, I'm going to talk about the movie, even though I haven't seen it. They didn't, well, I guess they were open-minded about it. <laughs> and I said, you know, the main reason that Jews were uncomfortable with this is that during the Crusades, when Christians went from England typically to what's now called Israel, what was then called the Holy Land or Palestine, they stopped off in France and Germany and killed a lot of Jews and <laughs> because they saw uh, the Jewish people as the murderers of, of Jesus. And I have to say, it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm explaining this, and, and I should mention that Jews have a fast day called Tishabov, where the tragedies of the Jewish community are, are commemorated and memorialized through a 25-hour fast. And one of the things that we talk about or study in that time period are the Crusades and, and the, the murders that were the horrific <laughs> parts of the Crusades. And uh, so I'm talking about this, and Jews have very long memory. You know, we don't, <laughs> the, the, main, the main purpose of that holiday is, begins with the destruction of Solomon's Temple and then the Second Temple in, around 2,000 years ago. And so – we don't forget stuff. We kind of hold it close. We're about to have the Jewish well, holiday of Passover. When it's, into the, when it's put into those rituals, it's kind of hard to forget, right? Yeah, it's, and, and we, it's, a big, it's a big part of our yearly <laughs> annual experience. We're about to have the holiday of Passover. Holiday of Passover is to commemorate the exodus from Egypt, which was about 3,000 years, 2,500 years ago. No, 3,000, um, forget it, a right. while ago, yeah. a long, long time ago, where we're supposed to see ourselves as being part of that exodus. That's really unusual in modern experiences. So we're really good at thinking about the past. So I'm telling the story, which to me is totally you know, normal to me, that Jews commemorate the destruction of the temple, the deaths during the Crusades, the pogroms of, of the Russian era, the Holocaust, all these misfortunes that have befallen the Jewish people, and yet we still survive, which we, which we are happy about. And the people in the room, uh, most of whom are religious, serious Christians, are all looking at their shoes. <laughs> the reason they're looking at their shoes, they've never heard this before. They're, they're just a they're new deep, form of guilt that they, they're deeply uh, ashamed. <laughs> and I felt terrible in a way. I mean, I was happy to, to be, I hope, educational. But so, so Jews have a lot of baggage about, about Jesus. And I think if you press Jews to, you know, what is the official Jewish position, I would say, is that Jesus was a man who lived, taught a bunch of things that were, many of which were consistent with the Jewish faith. You know, the, the so-called golden rule is a, a version of the silver rule, which was from Hillel, a Jewish rabbi at the same time, similar time period at least. One was in the negative form, don't do unto others what you would not want done unto you. One is in the positive, do unto others as you would have done unto you. So and I think most Jews are totally okay with much of the teaching of, of Jesus. They're, they're not okay with the uh, exhortations to not keep Jewish law that you find occasionally in the Gospels, or sure. yeah. that, he, that, God, he's, that he is the Messiah. Having said that, Jews have a concept of the Messiah. Obviously, Jesus was born a Jew, could have 
in, in Jewish belief, been the Messiah. We don't think he was, as far as we right. know. That's but, why I'm thinking so, you're favoring on the liar side of the liar, lunatic, legend, or lord. No, not right? at all. There's nothing uh, <laughs> that I understand that to be a liar, to, for Jesus to be a liar. Just that he was, uh, the Jewish perspective, he was a powerful teacher who was uh, a radical in his day for his view of Jewish practice. He emphasized the ethical, which many rabbis do in various parts of Jewish history. Sure. That yeah. part's no problem. So I want some Well, lunatic, lunatic might be up there then, right? I mean, he was yeah. a little crazy. I mean, if we, if we don't nah, believe him. We, not not by historical standards. All right, well, legend then. All right. Yeah, I, 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 closer, <laughs> closer to legend, but I will tell you one thing. I once met a Christian and never met a Jew, and I'm trying to explain to him how, what Jews believe and, what's, and how we – they say how we're different and – and uh, at the end, she said, well, but, but you do believe in Jesus, don't you? <laughs> no, unfortunately, <laughs> that we don't. So, uh, yeah, close, almost very similar, but not on that one thing. Right, right. All right, uh, Justin, you wanted to pick back uh, Russ's brain here on a little bit of Hume, maybe with a question regarding that? Yeah, I, uh, I had a couple questions. And I thought in the book, one of the things that is really well done is this kind of picture that emerges of, uh, of Adam Smith as, you know, an actual person in the world and not the kind of abstract economist that is so typically the, the caricature. And I note, I know, I know that you noted in the book that Smith was great friends with David Hume and um, in places Smith really lauds Hume's character. And I think, even uh, says that Hume is the kind of example of somebody who is both lovely and loved. And so irrespective of whether or not, you know, Hume's atheism uh, or any of his particular philosophical beliefs had a deep effect on Smith's system. And I know some people say they do. Some people said it wasn't that strong, but I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on, the role that their friendship played in Smith's conception of what a full life is? That's a great question. I think I said earlier that, that Smith felt that the right way to be loved and lovely was to be wise and virtuous. And I think he saw Hume as both of those things. And in particular, uh, I think he saw Hume as a man of great principle who did not let the winds of popularity sway him from his core and what he professed. So whether Smith agreed with Hume or not about the existence of God, I think he respected his stalwart defense of his own perspective. And so I think there's an interesting question. When I say that Smith said you want to be loved and lovely, parody of that might be, oh, so you want to make sure you're really popular. Uh, you want to make sure people like you. You want a glad hand and suck up to people and make sure that, that they uh, think you're great. And I think Smith didn't think that, <laughs> but that's a way you could caricature or parody what I, how I summarize Smith's view of, of human nature. And his friendship with Hume is, is one piece of evidence of how he actually thought about this. I didn't write about this in the book. I wish I had. It's a great entryway into how Smith saw this with some nuance. But 
I think his his respect for Hume, let, let me say it this way. You want to be loved and lovely, but you also have to decide whose opinion you care about. So if you want to be popular on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you know, there's one level of behavior that you'd want to follow if you wanted to maximize the number of followers. And so mm-hmm. it talks about this almost explicitly. He doesn't call it, of course, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, but he's very aware of the urge we have for celebrity and adulation. And I think when he looked at Hume, and I think when he thought about his own life, I think he was really careful not to do that. You know, one of the things I toy with in the book is wondering what Smith would think of how famous he is today. He was pretty famous in his own time, right? He was a phenomenon. He was a sensation. He lived most of his life with his mom. And <laughs> occasion, he, took, he went over to Europe for a while. He was sponsored by a member of the British royalty, took English uh, royalty, took his, or uh, Scottish royalty, excuse me. I'm all confused now. But anyway, he, he, he took a, a young protege to tutor across the uh, continent of Europe. And, that, and in the course of that, encountered many of the great thinkers of his time who, who paid a lot of attention to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his books were very well known. You know, he wasn't living in the Internet age, but he was still a, an intellectual celebrity. And yet I think that probably made him a little bit uncomfortable. I, he, I think he was a little more comfortable being in the backwater uh, of Scotland, which was a pretty hip backwater, right? If your friend's <laughs> David Hume, you're really not slumming right. it, really. Right. So, right. so I think the circle of people whose respect he wanted was Hume. <laughs> and people like him. There's, there's, a, there's a great story, I think I say in, tell in the book, that's, you know, it's, it may not have actually happened. It may be apocryphal, but there's a story that British Prime Minister Pitt was holding a dinner party and a number of illustrious people were there, and including Wilberforce, the abolitionist. I'm trying to remember who else was there. And, and Anna Smith was late, and he shows up, you know, whatever it was, 15, 20 minutes late or whatever. And everyone rose to greet him. Everyone stood mm-hmm. up out of respect. And uh, he was kind of embarrassed by that and kind of got him to kind of, I guess, gesture to them to sit down. And And Pitt said, oh, Mr. Smith, we're all your students. And I suspect that was deeply – I get goosebumps telling the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think that was enough fame and love for him. Uh, I don't think he needed – 23 million YouTube view, you know, views on his uh, video on specialization of divisional labor. Yeah. I think he was content with that smaller circle who he respected and perhaps the even much smaller circle of his best friend, uh, David Hume. So when, when Hume passed away, uh, Smith wrote a magnificent letter that Justin, I think you're referencing that I or alluding to that I mentioned in the book quote in the book where he extols his, his, uh, his friend's character and talks about what an extraordinary human being uh, Hume was. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's immortal. Hume is immortal for a lot of reasons. That's one of them though, is that what Adam Smith thought about and wrote about him and as a, as a eulogy. Yeah. And we should also say that it's easy to look back now and think that these were two giants of the Scottish enlightenment um, who are friends with each other. But even though Smith was, uh, widely known and respected in his time, Hume wasn't as respected as yeah. as Smith. And so 
the fact that Smith had such a high opinion of Hume when others didn't actually kind of, you know, it's a, a mark in favor of, of Smith's good taste. Yeah, it's a great, great insight. I, I think Hume was less well known because one, he was an atheist. I think that hurt him a little bit. And then two, he's not as easy to read. I mean, Adam Smith's a great writer and you can still enjoy a lot of what he wrote today. I encourage people to go to the Library of Economics and Liberty. You can read both of his books online there at no charge. And so, yeah, Smith Smith was, uh, it, it does tell you something about, I think, both men that uh, Smith respected Hume as much as he did. The other thing I would add, I think that's important is that there were, you, I, I thought of this because you mentioned the Scottish Enlightenment, both Smith and Hume influenced each other, obviously, and were influenced by the other people in that circle, including Adam Ferguson. Adam Ferguson has a phrase which I love. He, he writes about the things that are the result of human action, but not human design. That is, things that are orderly, even though no one's running them. I use the example of traffic. It's a negative example. Uh, good manners would be a positive example. The evolution of language is another example. There are many, many things that look like they're designed by a a well-intentioned and knowledgeable committee. Powerful central government. <laughs> right, but they're not. They just happen. They're what, what I call, and some others call emergent order, sometimes called spontaneous order by Hayek and others. And, and to me, that was a, an incredibly important, deep idea that came out of that Scottish Enlightenment. They all influenced each other in thinking and writing about it. Of course, influenced Darwin and in thinking about biology and natural uh, selection and evolution. And though that phenomenon of, of the undesigned order or hidden order is uh, another, just an incredibly important concept that, that was in the air and that they absorbed and then enhanced through their conversations. And I think that, that just, it's just important to mention that. Well, I've got a question for you that we, we've managed to avoid Corona here uh, pretty good, uh, but this crisis, completely. Ha- uh, we did, we did. And this is, uh, we're reaching towards the end. So I'm going to bring something in because I think it's important. Um, and actually Jacob uh, brought up, he was having a little bit of a libertarian crisis. So I think all of the people on the line here are kind of libertarian leaning. And so he asked me like, I'm, you know, I'm really questioning kind of libertarianism in a way. And I, so my response back to him, this is what I want you to comment on. I, I said, you know, libertarian, part of the libertarian creed is that um, you can do whatever you want as long as you're not hurting other people. And so I think even a libertarian under the current circumstances we're with could be okay with heavy quarantining and other, uh, what we're seeing, perceiving to be big government involvement in curbing the crisis because as a libertarian, um, it means if you might harm somebody unknowingly, if you're an asymptomatic carrier of, uh, of the virus or whatever. So as a libertarian, I think we could still be okay to have maybe these bigger government involvements for a crisis that's unprecedented like we're facing. And I'm, I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on that. Well, my first thought is, comes from the talking heads, David Byrne. This ain't no party, this ain't no disco, this ain't no fooling around. Those are from a song called Life During Wartime. It's a great song, by the way. I strongly recommend the, uh, the movie version of that song. And called, oh. in the, the movie Stop Making, Stop Making Sense, I think. All right, we'll try to uh, add it to the show notes. Yeah. Um, 
So one way to think about this, the way I think about it, is it, it is something like wartime. That is, we can, when, when large potential uh, amounts of human life are at stake, you could argue that, that the appropriate role for government is to defend uh, life in a way that might be hard for private action. Having mm-hmm. said that, I think there's two caveats to that that I think are crucial, which we seem to have forgotten mostly in the last few weeks because uh, people are going crazy <laughs> and having trouble keeping things in perspective. But th- the first would be there are a lot of things that, that can be done without government, and we forget that. So the yeah. example that's, I think, crucial right now is that <clears throat> there's a shortage of ventilators, there's a shortage of masks, there's a shortage of toilet paper. There are a bunch of shortages, and people say, oh, well, how's that market system working now? <laughs> well, the reason it's not working so well is because we don't have a market in those things, mostly. Right. Uh, our medical system is mostly nationalized, effectively through Medicare. The hospitals are insulated from competition. They have little or no incentive to stockpile reserves. The federal government has little or no incentive to do that. They should have under the current world we live in because the private incentive to stockpiles ruined and it's ruined because if you have masks and we know people who do they're not allowed to sell them at a profit they're not allowed to to be compensated for the risks that they took in stockpiling them they're not allowed to make sure they get to the people who are willing to pay the most for them which in this case should be the health professionals so i've been saying on my twitter account you should wear a mask when you go outside you should right now this is uh, we're recording this on uh, march 31st you should stay at home right now if you can. If you have to go out, you should wear a mask. You should wear a mask that you make yourself or a, wear a scarf or a, uh, a sleeve or a buff or whatever you have at home. Don't take them from healthcare, folks. But that shouldn't happen in a capitalist system. And the reason it's happening now, the reason you should feel guilty buying a surgical mask, say a real mask, is that there aren't enough to go around because they're not allowed to increase the prices that would generate a, a zillion of them in a relatively short period of time. Mm-hmm. Similarly with ventilators. Elon Musk was gung-ho to make ventilators. Uh, I don't know where that search and effort is going right now, but once the federal government says, GM, you're going to make them under government decree, yeah. Elon Musk got to step down. He's got to stand <laughs> down. He, I get it. So the first thing is, is that I think we've lost a lot of the ability we, we've lost a lot of the power of market-based, and I would a better phrase I would call it, say is voluntary, yeah. top-down. Voluntary and bottom-up responses to this have been extraordinary. All kinds of efforts are happening along all kinds of dimensions to help people cope with this without the government. doesn't mean it's the only thing we should do, but we shouldn't step on those. We shouldn't ruin those through government actions. That's the first thing. The second thing I would add is that the steps that the government takes to cope with this should be cautious careful, designed to be short run, temporary, palliative. This idea that, you know, I don't know if you've seen it, but this uh, recent so-called $2.2 trillion quote stimulus package that passed <laughs> the other day, it's not really a stimulus package. It's a, uh, it's a, not a good word. I think that's a, a mis- yeah. misnomer, but you could make the case that if government orders people to not go to work, that maybe government should compensate them. That's you know a reasonable, I think for, I'm not an anarchist. I'm a classical liberal, meaning I want limited government, not anarchy. I'm okay with the idea of that, but I recognize that if you try to do that for a year, you're either going to bankrupt the treasury, bankrupt the Fed, or you're going to have you know hyperinflation. You know people 
make this out to be some trade-off between yeah. the economy and health. It's not the economy. It's what right. we call daily life. <laughs> right. The idea that we can put the economy in a freezer or in a coma or in vacation for X months and then just snap our fingers and say, now let's go back to normal. Well, if that were possible, I think most libertarians, classical liberals say that's fine. That's not possible. Yeah. There's going to be a length of time in which that is not possible. And I started to mention the CARE, the so-called CARES Act. It's a horrible name. <laughs> but the so-called stimulus package gives enormous power to the Federal Reserve and the Secretary of the Treasury to lend money to business. I think that's a terrible mistake. I think yeah. that's a, <laughs> the wrong way to think about how to justify what government can do in the face of this crisis that should be that is justified yeah the public the longer, businesses the economy they don't exist individuals only exist so correct. i think uh, you would agree that it that it need to be targeted to individuals well i'm not sure it should be targeted to individuals but it might be that there are certain reasons that we would target it to businesses or for certain kinds of businesses but you'd have to do it in a way that was not so discretionary, which is really a problem. We start yeah. to think about how we, you would structure that. And at any rate, we're going we're gonna to pay a price for this. That's inevitable. The question is, are we going to pay a bigger price than we're going to be happy paying? Not because we were poor for six months or three months or two weeks, but because we've changed the fundamental nature of how economic decisions are made in the United States. And the reason I mention that, it's not because, oh, well, then we'll just let people die. No, I'm not saying we should let people <laughs> die. Let's look for ways to save lives without having to invoke such a large government response. Yeah. If, if it's possible to maintain social distancing and wear a mask and reduce the spread of this as we come out of self-isolation and quarantine, let's look for those mechanisms. Let's liberate the power of creative <laughs> people to find treatment and vaccines and let's minimize how long the government runs the economy yeah if, that's what's being forgotten in the current debate at least on march 31st oh absolutely and uh, as hayek i think uh, said once if we're going to do some planning let's plan for competition and that is not being done at correct all. Yeah. absolutely yeah all right well that looks like a good place to stop um we certainly have enjoyed our conversation and went a little longer than we normally do. So I hope you listeners have enjoyed it as much as I have. <laughs> so from a personal standpoint, those have been great. Any last comments, uh, Justin or, or Russ? I'd just like to thank Russ for coming on. It's, it's a real pleasure. Oh, and it's I'd great. recommend for everyone to uh, go out and buy that How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life book. It's, it's an excellent book. Thanks, Justin. I enjoyed talking to you guys. It was a lot of fun. Yes, and uh, we didn't get to talk. We talked a little bit about the beginning, but the Econ Talk podcast is fantastic. So uh, listeners, go, go check out that as well. And so um, other than that, I think we solved uh, the world's problems at this point. So I think we'll, we'll come to a close. And for all you listeners out there, if you enjoy what you're listening to, uh, if you could give us a little five-star rating on your app, that helps us rise in the ranks for discussions like this. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.